My name is Basil Sheriff. I have personally experienced international parental abduction and subsequent parental alienation. My three daughters were taken from the Kingdom of Bahrain to the United States. As of recording this podcast on the 19th of May, 2022, it has been 1,061 days since I've seen, heard, spoken, or enjoyed the contact with my children. Uh, I'm very pleased, doubly pleased, uh, on two fronts to have Judge Marcus uh, with us on this podcast. Uh, And the reason is because Judge Marcus has spent a considerable amount of time on uh, child rights, family law. Uh, He's lectured internationally and is an expert on matters of uh, divorce, parental alienation, abduction, and other matters. It's also a double pleasure for me uh, because this podcast is enabled because of the Abraham Accords and the peace between the Kingdom of Bahrain and the State of Israel, and it has enabled us to have this conversation today. So I would like to welcome uh, Judge Marcus. And uh, Judge Marcus, would you please tell us a little bit about your background and your work? Yeah, Uh, Basil, I, I strongly join your pleasure that Israel and Bahrain are now on a uh, path to uh, normal relationships. Uh, the Abraham Accords are amazing. A uh, month and a half ago, I was in Dubai. I met there with a senior family lawyer um, and found uh, great commonality in our systems. Uh, Philip Marcus, born in Birmingham, England. I took my law degree at University College. I was a solicitor, moved to Israel in 1978 requalified as an advocate at the Israeli bar. And when the Israeli legislature passed the family courts law in 1995, which requires that in order to be a judge in family cases, you have experience and knowledge in the field. Uh, I was a candidate to be appointed a judge and I was one of the first judges to be appointed in Israel to the specialist family court. I I sat in that court for 17 years. In the course of that, I did a master's degree at Haifa University. um, And uh, I took early retirement in uh, 2012 um, because I wanted to concentrate on research, writing and lecturing on various areas of family law and the theory of law, jurisprudence, with particular reference to children and uh, people under disabilities. Uh, And since then, I've been uh, writing and lecturing. I've had a number of articles published in peer-reviewed periodicals. Um, Last week, I was in Malta, where I was the keynote speaker at a seminar um, about children whose parents separate and divorce, and uh, whether a child-parent contact problems, uh, child uh, psychological maltreatment, 
uh, and I had a number of meetings there with senior officials uh, with a view to doing a formal consultation, uh, both on reform of the family law and the family courts. Um, I'm also involved here in Israel and uh, elsewhere around the world in prevention projects, that is to prevent situations in which couples split up and divorce. Uh, and if they do so, uh, they should be able to prevent uh, excessive damage to their children by properly planning the separation and divorce, and uh, in particular, uh, their immediate uh, decision when they decide they're going to separate should not be to go to a lawyer, it should be go to a counsellor, somebody who understands about child development, uh, and I can talk about the prevention programmes um, that I'm suggesting if you find that to be relevant. So there's a lot, of, lot to unpack there, because um, when you talk about family law, of course, it's uh, country specific. There's uh, lots of differences, and so there's not a uniformity universally uh, in terms of family law. So uh, how is it when you are, uh, you mentioned that you were in Malta, how is it that you are advising uh, these governments or these authorities in terms of family law when there's such a, a wide variety of um, jurisprudence in all of these um, localities? Uh, that's an excellent question. But there are two areas of commonality, I think, um, with all humanity. The first is the understanding that children need both parents. Um, and uh, that applies from conception uh, and well beyond majority. Um, and therefore, uh, it should be appreciated that uh, children who find themselves in situations where the parents are arguing, separating, divorcing, nevertheless, they need both parents. The second uh, understanding is that there are international conventions. There's the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, which uh, has been agreed by practically all the countries of the world. That means that at least at the level of governments, there is an understanding that the principles behind the international convention uh, apply universally. So that uh, armed with those things, that the first area is more about psychology and child development, uh, and the second is based on international conventions. Uh, that means that uh, the governments concerned uh, and the judges who uh, decide on these cases uh, have certain guidelines which ought to be applied. Now, I I'm aware of huge differences uh, from one country to another uh, about how they regard uh, these conventions. My view is that if a government takes on itself to sign a convention, it also commits itself to apply the convention. Um, the same applies in the Convention on uh, Child Abduction. The same applies uh, in other conventions, there are two European conventions uh, which deal, uh, among other things, with the uh, family life. Uh, and uh, so uh, while there are uh, huge differences, the underlying principles, I think, are common. But in your view, so you mentioned that there are two main international treaties for protecting children. But in your view, uh, do you think those are working efficiently? I mean, because there are still 
there is still cases of international parental child abduction. There is still cases of non-enforcement of Hague Convention uh, matters. Um, there are certain countries that abide by and don't abide by. Uh, it, it's, it, it's a much more nuanced and complicated subject matter. And of course, we're dealing and we're dealing with the globe. So I mean, do you think that these, um, these international treaties, which are aimed at protecting uh, children's rights in regards to parental abduction and in regards to alienation, do you think that they're working effectively? No, they're clearly not working. Uh, and as I say, um, uh, for a government to sign a convention is an easy thing. All you need is a pen. But to actually apply them, uh, the, the, there is a huge gap between the norms and the application of those norms. Um, the, there are a number of difficulties with the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. First of all, it talks about the rights of the child, uh, which are a very uh, interesting and charming and, and uh, good slogan. But it does not break down those rights into the obligations and the responsibilities, both of governments and of parents. Uh, I, in fact, uh, gave a lecture at a conference in Sydney a few years ago, uh, and I actually rewrote the Convention on the Rights of Child as a convention on responsibilities to children. Because once you have identified the person who has that responsibility, then you have a specific person who can be sued and made to do things. The other defect, of course, of the United Nations Convention is that it has no teeth. Uh, similarly, the Hague Convention. Uh, there are no provisions for penalising a government which doesn't apply. In the European Convention on Rights and Freedoms, uh, there is the possibility of applying to the European Court of Human Rights. And there, the European Court of Human Rights uh, has limited powers, but it can, in fact, uh, find uh, a government uh, which is found not to be complying with the uh, provisions of the convention. Uh, but that, of course, is after all the local um, jurisdictions have been exhausted uh, and the effect of a fine on a large country with a large exchequer um, is really a pinprick. The advantage of the conventions is, as I say, that they set up norms uh, but uh, there's a long, uh, a huge gap between the application of the, the or between the norm and its application, and it's in those areas that I'm trying to uh, encourage um, activists, but also to encourage governments to take seriously the obligations under those conventions. Well, I, exactly to the point. So, isn't your um this discussion, isn't it rather academic in, in the sense that we're talking about words on paper and treaties between governments, but how does that trickle down to the individual family who wants to um, reconnect with their family members, who want to have their parental rights restored? Uh, this is still a challenge because uh, while, uh, while international treaties are at a very high level, when it trickles down to the man or woman on the street, these are very difficult to implement. How does one implement? And of course, it takes considerable economic resources to pursue 
um, implementation of any of these treaties. And sometimes um, many families, many mothers, many fathers will exhaust their financial resources before they can even get to that point. So, so uh, I think uh, you have to look at things uh, on a timeline. For the individual family that is affected, I agree that non-compliance with the uh, conventions and non-application of the conventions by the governments and by the courts uh, is uh, disastrous. But these things take time. Uh, and uh, I think uh, there, there are two main areas in, in which uh, this can be made to happen. Uh, the first is uh, public pressure, campaigning, uh, drawing attention to the uh, issues, drawing attention to the effects of non-compliance with the uh, norms of the conventions. And the second, uh, which may follow from the first, uh, involves uh, a, a press campaign of persuasion uh, on politicians, uh, pillorying politicians who do not uh, are not in advance of these, not uh, standing behind these things. Uh, and and thirdly, uh, where it's possible, uh, bringing these conventions, these obligations, to the attention of the courts uh, by properly qualified lawyers who who uh, are capable of bringing these things to attention, and uh, by by some process, um, it, it is possible. Uh, I I would hope uh, to make an impression. Uh, the uh, problems you uh, talk about are problems, again, they are universal um, and uh, they depend on goodwill. Uh, there is also no substitute for training for uh, lawyers and judges, social workers and psychologists about these conventions, uh, what they are made for and what are their effects uh, and uh, what is the effect of non uh, compliance. Uh, uh, in dealing with campaigns here and in other places, one of the most effective uh, methods of campaigning is to uh, have programs and interviews with adults who, as children, were alienated from their parents, who, as children, were abducted. Um, and there is research on the effects of abduction. Uh, my good friend, Professor Marilyn Freeman in, uh, in London, uh, has written widely on the topic, uh, and she's uh, taken cohorts of abducted or uh, relocated children and talked about the effects on them. If they can be persuaded, uh, and it's a very difficult uh, job for them to bring themselves, to make themselves public, uh, but those campaigns uh, are more likely to hit home than academic papers um, criticizing non-application of the conventions. So let's bring the conversation slightly um, to alienation, as you referenced. Um, do you think that parental alienation is something that is widely understood in the courts by judges, by lawyers? Um, I, I read an academic paper the other day um, they mentioned that alienation is only about 1% of divorce cases. So it's a very niche market. Now, of course, that 1% represents millions of mothers and fathers who are affected by parental alienation. But 
Do you think that in the legal profession, both from the standpoint of judges and from the standpoint of lawyers, that there is an understanding of it as a concept? And certainly there are academics who claim that it doesn't exist, that typically it is used as a tool by abusive, typically fathers, uh, to control the abused mother. Um, uh, but of course, this is a phenomenon that affects both mothers and fathers. I mean, but it, in general, it is often labeled against fathers. Do you think that there is an appropriate understanding in the legal framework and industry that this is something that needs to be addressed and how to address? Because it's uh, particularly in the case of alienation. If the child themselves have been, for lack of a better word, brainwashed into claiming that they do not wish to have contact with a parent, how does a judge deal with that when they speak with a nine-year-old, seven-year-old, 12-year-old, 14-year-old who says, I don't want to see my mother, I don't want to see my father? How, does, how can the courts address such a complex issue? So you've asked, uh, I think, four or five questions there, um, and I will try to deal with them, not necessarily in order. Um, the, the, there is an underlying issue here, um, uh, and I've referred and you've referred to the rights of parents and the rights of children. Uh, my master's uh, degree um, thesis was based on getting rid of rights and talking about responsibilities. And I already mentioned that once we talk about responsibilities, we're changing the discourse. But the term parental alienation, while it has become a brand in some places, has become a millstone round the neck of all those concerned in other places. That is because of the those who deny that it exists, those that, as you point out, uh, have written um, uh, junk science, uh, proving from a cherry-picked uh, group of uh, people who answered uh, uh, the following question, do you as a female think that the courts have deprived you unjustifiably of custody because of parental alienation? Then, of course, all their results come out uh, accordingly. Um, uh, the, the particular uh, people who've written that, they've been taken down uh, by uh, other academics, but uh, they are, they're still at it. Um, uh, and uh, one of the uh, realizations I have come to is that the term parental alienation in the eyes of some is somewhat ambiguous. Who is alienating who from whom? Uh, and therefore, uh, I prefer to describe the situation in which one parent influences the child to cut off contact with the other previously loved parent without justification relating to the welfare of the child is perpetrating child psychological abuse. The advantage of terminology of child abuse is that you can then make common cause with those organizations and those activists who are against child physical abuse and child sexual abuse and child psychological abuse uh, and 
when one parent alienates the child against the other uh, parent, then that is clearly, it clearly answers all the definitions of abuse and maltreatment in the sense that it is uh, an action which is taken or failure to uh, take action where action is necessary, uh, which causes damage to the child. Uh, there is plenty of literature out there about the damage caused to children who, who are cut off uh, unjustifiably from one of the parents. Um, even those children who themselves, as it were, decide they don't want contact with the parent, uh, if the other parent fails to intervene and fails to insist on contact, um, then that parent is also guilty, in my opinion of child psychological abuse. Uh, and uh, in those cases, the damage to the child is colossal. Um, there is uh, psychological damage, there is neurological damage because of the stress. The neurological damage can lead to reduced immune system responses and can lead to physical harm. Uh, and uh, so, so, so that's, uh, in terms of the terminology. Those who say that it doesn't exist um, are uh, motivated by concerns uh, which have absolutely nothing to do with the long-term well-being of children. Uh, there are all kinds of other motivations and projects behind them. Uh, and uh, there is no alternative uh, but to uh, write at the highest possible academic and professional level in order to uh, demolish their mistaken uh, ideas. That is part of the training uh, and part of the campaigning. Uh, you talk about uh, judges and you talk about lawyers. So in many countries, uh, judges who sit in family cases have no previous knowledge uh, about family law no knowledge about child development and psychology, no knowledge about psychiatry, about personality disorders, uh, and all the other things that come into a family case. That itself uh, needs to be remedied. Uh, as I said, uh, the family courts law in Israel provides that in order to be appointed a judge of the family court, uh, you have to have experience and knowledge in the field. Uh, what that means is, that a judge will not be appointed to family court unless he really wants to. That is not the case in many, I might say, most other jurisdictions. In some jurisdictions, a judge is rotated as soon as he's appointed and has to do a year or two in small claims and a year or two in traffic court, a year or two in family court, a year or two in building disputes. Um, uh, and in my experience, probably 95% of judges or more do not want to hear family cases, but they are forced to do so. And therefore, they do so unwillingly and they do so uh, incompetently. Uh, a judge from India told me that a judge is uh, sent to family court as punishment because they've done something stupid or because they're inefficient. And of course, inefficiency is the last thing that's needed. There are some judges who um, I heard of one judge, uh, I won't say where from, uh, who had a, a general docket and uh, had all the family cases in the afternoon so that he could spend lunchtime in the pub uh, in order to give himself some kind of, shall we say, liquid uh, 
buffering uh, against the emotional um, things that go on in the family court. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that uh, court administrations and justice ministries have to understand that family law is a very different thing from criminal law and from regular civil law for a number of reasons. One is that the parties in a regular civil law case, uh, there's been a breach of contract or, or there's been an accident or something like that. Uh, they meet first when the incident happens. They meet again in the court. But after the court has finished, they never meet other again. Families, however, carry on uh, for generations by definition. The second issue is that most family cases are urgent. What that means is they need to be handled early because uh, in light of the continuing relationships between the parties, the longer the litigation is going on, the more uh, entrenched the parties are liable to become in their positions, the more difficult it's going to be to remedy the situation. And in particular, where a child is not in contact with one of the parents, um, according to the uh, accepted psychological understanding, a child in that situation realizes, because of attachment, that there's something wrong uh, about not having contact with one of the parents. But at the same time, that child will convince him or herself uh, for what the child perceives uh, as being their uh, mental balance, that there is a good reason why they're not in contact. And the longer that that goes on, the more entrenched the case becomes. What that means is the judge trying the case has to understand that the matter has to be dealt with as a matter of urgency. We are dealing with life and death here. We're dealing with the psychological uh, uh, end of any prospect of normal uh, life for the child. And of course, the affected parents uh, are uh, unfortunately far too many documented cases uh, that parents have in fact ended their lives because of the uh, disastrous situation in which they find themselves. All that means that you need uh, as far as possible to have specialist judges, uh, if you don't have specialist judges, then you need to have training, intensive training for judges. And you need lawyers who are prepared to address judges and bring the judges' attention to all the science that is behind this in order that the cases will be dealt with uh, swiftly, competently, and efficiently. One more point that you mentioned, what more point you mentioned is the voice of the child, the child who says, I don't want. Um, there is a tendency to think that children uh, need to be believed. There is Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which says that the child should be heard. But as one of my colleagues here says, the child has a voice, but not a choice. But it's easy, uh, too easy, to say, well, the child doesn't want, we're not going to force the child. Well, I'm afraid parenting is all about making children do things that they don't want to do. If you tell your five-year-old child uh, that he, he needs an inoculation, and the child says, what's an inoculation, mommy? And mommy says, there's a nurse with a sharp needle, and she's going to stick it in you. And the child says, no, I have the right to the integrity of my body. I'm not going to have uh, an inoculation. You don't give in to that. 
you tell the child, look, you know, uh, this is what's going to happen. You'll get a toy and a lollipop uh, when you when it's over, uh, and everybody has it, and and it's for your own good. And the same applies when we're talking about contact between a child and a parent, except in those exceptionally rare cases of egregious violence or mental illness, when there is no way in which uh, contact uh, with such a parent is going to be uh, beneficial for the child. But those cases, as I say, uh, they are infinitesimally rare. So uh, you mentioned a couple of points which I would like to address. Uh, there's an academician in the United States, uh, William Burnett. He wrote in 2020 uh, the five-factor model for diagnosis of parental alienation. Um, and he mentioned many of the things that you mentioned in terms of the time factor. Um, he and his uh, other research colleagues had said that if contact between parent and child doesn't happen within one year, exactly as you said, that those that behavior then becomes entrenched. And those children then also take the entrenched position of the alienating parent and said that it is very difficult to then commence a successful reunification. Now, that might be quite devastating for other alienated parents to hear, but it is a fact. And you have acknowledged that. You have said that it requires the court to act fast. It requires the court to act swiftly. I know from my personal experience going through uh, both the Bahrain courts and the um, uh, District of Columbia Superior Court, it took me two years. And in the end, uh, it was a lot of nothing. And I continued to pursue, I continued to fight, but I also committed a great deal of resources to that effort. And in the end, I still got nothing. What my lawyer had told me at one point, and I found it extremely devastating, she had said some parents just give up because they can't afford it. They cannot, it's an expensive endeavor. You fight, you go, go, go. And in the end, you say, hopefully the children will find me. Now, is that, in your view, an effective court system for parents to receive justice? Of course not. It's the opposite of a court system. It's the opposite of what a court system ought to be doing. What is a court system for? A court system is for applying the norms uh, of the society and ensuring that any breach of those norms is answered uh, properly and efficiently. Uh, I know uh, William Burnett very well. I'm collaborating with him on a number of projects. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, he talks about five symptoms. Uh, I, I don't much like the idea of symptoms. I'm not sure that it's a medical condition. He's a, he's a psychiatrist and a doctor. I'm just a lawyer, uh, but I think it's more a behavioral thing. But certainly his work is extremely effective. He talks about a year. Uh, Dr. Mordechai Sherry, one of my colleagues here in Israel, said if a child hasn't seen a parent for three months, then the road back is extremely rocky. The difficulty is, also in Israel and in many places, 
that by the time the case gets to court, it's too late because months have elapsed since contact has been cut off, um, or at least since the first uh, signs of uh, there's going to be contact problems. Um, and then the courts need to attack these cases immediately. I can tell you that in Israel, the president of our Supreme Court issued a practice direction uh, a year and a half ago saying that in any case in which there's an allegation of abuse of a child, including uh, of contact interference, the case has to come before a judge within 14 days of filing. And both parties have to be present. And the court can then appoint a guardian ad litem for the child. The court can then, uh, after satisfying itself that there is no imminent danger to the child, order re-establishment of contact and can order treatment and intervention. Uh, and if that isn't uh, possible because there is a dispute at the first hearing, then the court will expedite the hearings so that in a matter of weeks, uh, there are effective orders in force. And here there is another issue, and that is enforcement of orders, um, which we'll deal with, if you like, at a later stage, because that is a serious pitfall in many, many uh, jurisdictions where the court expends an awful lot of time in coming to a decision, but there's no way of getting the decision enforced because of a recalcitrant parent or a child who's refusing and the recalcitrant parent is not impressing uh, on the child the need to do things. The, the second issue you raised is expense. Now, um, different uh, governments have different ideas about who ought to be funding these proceedings. Certainly for people who do not have the means, in several countries, there is legal aid so that a lawyer is appointed at the court's expense, at or the, the state's expense. Um, but I can tell you uh, that doesn't happen in many places. Uh, in places where it used to happen, it doesn't anymore. In England and Wales, they have a, an egregious system whereby they abolished legal aid in family cases. However, they left open legal aid for somebody who alleges they have been uh, abused or assaulted. But legal aid does not extend to the respondent, the person against whom the allegation is made. Um, uh, th that is uh, a way of, uh, you know, uh, shifting the goalposts and not a level playing field, which is what uh, we who brought, were brought up in cricket and soccer in England, a level playing field is essential. Um, that's the opposite of a level playing field. But the issue of expense, the issue of, just, just one more thing here. The issue of expense, of course, is, is, uh, is, is highly relevant. Uh, and it means that even in those jurisdictions um, where somebody who does have the means will get, uh, hopes to get justice, somebody who does not have the means uh, is, is, is not, uh, the, the courts are effectively um, unavailable to them. So this then means that it leaves families really in a legal limbo and in a tornado of emotions to try and achieve what is believed to be justice. But regardless of your faith, your uh, cultural background, it is, it is natural that a child has a mother and a father. This is nature. From the time of the story of Adam and Eve, uh, biblical stories, I mean, this is nature. 
So for a parent, mother or a father, to try and achieve that natural right, somebody who is a proper person, a loving person, and a person who wishes to have influence on a child's life, to raise a child, to love a child, to watch that child grow, uh, to have that deprived, uh, what you're describing is really uh, a set of turmoil for them because the legal system isn't uh, appropriately equipped to assist them. There's economic barriers, there's structural barriers, and then you are dealing with, in the end, as you mentioned earlier, a family court. Family court is totally different from criminal court or contract law court. Contract law court is very simple. Here's a contract, there's a breach of contract. You haven't paid, you must pay. Uh, criminal court, you have done this bad act. Now you need to provide restitution for that bad act. Family court is, is much more nuanced. It deals with families and every family is complicated. Every family has a story, every family has a backstory and it deals with human emotions. So again, I think for many families is difficult if there is an entrenched person who wishes to commit an act of alienation, you either convince that person to change their actions or you seek relief from the courts. But what you're saying is the relief from the courts, yes, there's these treaties, it's international treaties, but it is also extremely challenging to seek restitution and relief from the suffering of losing your child. So uh, the, the, uh, all this is pointing in, in, uh, in one direction, and that is that efforts ought to be made to prevent this from happening so that the cases don't get to court. The court is the wrong place for families to deal with their disputes. Uh, about that, there is a growing consensus. Sir Andrew McFarlane, who is the president of the family division of the High Court in England, has said this. What that means is that uh, cases should, as far as possible, be kept out of court. That does not mean that in cases where there has been uh, a, a breach of the responsibilities of a parent, uh, that case should not come to court. Certainly it should come to court. But, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, one of uh, the main themes that I'm working on at the moment is prevention. And prevention involves a, a bunch of, of different uh, methods. And the first method is that people should be educated, that having a child is, uh, or making a child is fun and it's very easy. But from that point on, bringing up a child is full of responsibilities. And those responsibilities start at conception uh, uh, and, as I say, carry on well into the adult life of the child. Now, that, of course, requires a paradigm shift. Uh, I'm working with a group called the Two Wishes Foundation. Uh, we founded it uh, together with uh, Nick Child, who is a retired child psychiatrist from Scotland, and David Curl who is a scientist and uh, naturalist and a campaigner in Australia, 
Uh, and uh, I strongly recommend that you look at the website of the Two Wishes Foundation. Uh, why two wishes? Because every child is entitled to three wishes, where the, par the parents break up. Um, the, the first wish is that mom and dad will get back together again. But of course, there the child has no control over that. The other two wishes are that, firstly, that that child shall uh, survive intact the breakup of the family. And the third wish is that nobody else should go through the breakup of a family. So as I say, uh, that involves uh, a paradigm shift that uh, spousal relations, uh, once there's a child involved, are far more than just whether, uh, what did a, a lady who came before me in the court was getting divorced uh, and I asked her why you've got children and she said, he doesn't turn me on. Well, that's nothing to do with the child. That's to do with the individual. Uh, and uh, that requires, as I say, a, a paradigm shift. But what can we do in the meantime? So one of the ideas that I'm working on is that when uh, youngsters in high school have relationship classes, they should be told that having a child is a very, very serious business. And it shouldn't be uh, taken on, um, you know, uh, casually. But also, what are the responsibilities? And those responsibilities include a responsibility to the other parent of the child and the responsibility that the child uh, shall have decent, ongoing relationships with the other parent and that parent's family. If we can get that in at the high school stage, and, and there's another stage as well, and that is um, helping kids to choose who to have kid, children with. Uh, that, that involves teaching them about coercive control, teaching them how to spot uh, a partner who is probably not going to be uh, a lifetime partner. Um, there, there are all kinds of cultural issues involved there, of course. Uh, one is how easy it is to get divorced. Um, on the one hand, you have religions in which there's no such thing as divorce. Uh, on the others, there are religions or, or, or cultures in which one parent can say to the other, I don't want you anymore, go away. Uh, and uh, that, of course, uh, uh, may lead to a, uh, a perception that spousal relationships are disposable. Well, they may be, but the parental relationship is not disposable. So, so that's on the very, very early primary prevention. The second area of prevention is raising public awareness of what happens to children whose parents separate and divorce. And in particular, what happens when there is a relocation uh, or a, an alienation and the devastating effects those things have on children. As I pointed out, uh, one of the best ways of doing that is to have public uh, awareness uh, raised specifically by those adults who as children were separated from and alienated from their parents because they are very effective voices. So that is uh, raising public awareness and that should be the focus uh, of campaigning. The next stage is uh, trying to get these cases before they develop. And that involves early identification, 
both of a child who is stressed by parental uh, friction and breakup, and also inappropriate parental behaviors. Here, uh, I'm working with educators, with teachers, school principals, uh, school counselors, because children spend a lot of hours with their teachers, and a, and a teacher needs to be uh, trained to spot the signs of changes in behavior of a child, uh, which may be attributable to all kinds of reasons, but may also be attributable to tension in the family. If little Johnny or little Janie, uh, are, their achievements are getting worse, or getting better, which of course counterintuitively, uh, a child whose life at home is terrible will want to get as much encouragement as possible from outside. So the child who was not very assiduous starts working hard. A child who was losing weight or gaining weight, a child who was a normative child uh, becomes uh, uh, ridiculously outgoing uh, and, and acts out in school or uh, becomes isolated. Uh, a normal child who is hooking up with uh, the, the more negative kids in class. Um, uh, truanting, uh, child comes unprepared. These are all signs that something's going on in the life of the child, not necessarily uh, the, the breakup between the parents. But the people in the schools are in an excellent position to call in the parents and say, look, little Johnny or little Janie uh, seem to be having trouble. What's going on? And refer them for professional intervention, counseling, if necessary, what we call parental re-education, and also get the child into to help before the case deteriorates, before the case uh, needs to go to court. There are also uh, parental behaviours which happen in the school, which uh, even the school secretary may be able to pick these things up, or the crossing guard, the, the gentleman or lady who take the kids from the school bus into the grounds, or the teacher or security guard who are supervising uh, when the children go home. If it's mommy's turn to pick up uh, little Janie and daddy shows up and starts screaming at mommy about her boyfriend, or if it's daddy's turn to pick up the child and mommy shows up and starts screaming about non-payment of maintenance or about his uh, improper uh, habits with drugs and, and alcohol, that is a clear sign that uh, there is going to be some kind of effect on the child. The child, of course, is embarrassed because the child's friends are there and the child's parents, friend's parents are there and so on. This uh, should require the people in the school to call in the parents and say, look, something's going on here. You need help. And, and uh, the, same applies, the same applies to medical doctors. The same applies to pediatricians. The same applies to social workers, psychologists. They need to know about what might happen and cut it off. Well, I think, though, these frontline workers, as you describe, uh, the schools, the medical doctors, uh, these are frontline officials, the guidance counselors, the crossing guard, um, all of these uh, individuals describe. Uh, these are frontline workers, but they are more in tune to addressing physical abuse. So, yes, if a child shows up with a broken arm, if a child shows up with a black eye, if a child is, as you described, gaining weight, losing weight. These are typically more associated with 
um, what would be more commonly understood to be domestic violence in the house, where there is an abusive parent who is physically abusing a child. Uh, parental alienation is something different. It is, it, is a, it is a domestic violence and parental abuse that is unseen. There, there are no bruises. There is no broken arm. And the, this is more difficult for these frontline workers to identify. It is also a phenomena that is much less understood. I myself, as somebody who has suffered from parental alienation, I never even knew that this was a thing. I didn't know it existed. Um, I think um, uh, there's an author um, who had said that unless you or somebody you know has encountered parental alienation, you probably didn't even know that it existed. I mean, of course, I was familiar from TV, from programs, about kidnappings, about all of these other standard scenarios. I didn't know this was the thing until I experienced it myself. So, uh, as, I, as I pointed out, uh, there needs to be a public awareness campaign ongoing to teach people, kids, adolescents, that there is such a thing and how damaging it is. That has to go on in every place. Uh, and there are effective campaigns, there are less effective campaigns. Uh, I know in Ireland, for example, uh, they've persuaded practically all of the county councils in both in the Republic of Ireland and in Northern Ireland to pass resolutions condemning parental alienation. But um, just to remind ourselves about the history, until 1962, nobody believed that a parent would physically abuse a child until a doctor called Kempe in Colorado wrote an article about it. It took until the 1980s or 90s for people to realize that parents commit sexual abuse against their children. And now we're talking about psychological abuse, which as you say, is more difficult to identify because there are no bruises, but it's no less damaging. It may even be more damaging. Uh, and so there is a need for alerting the public to the fact that there is such a thing and how damaging it is, uh, we come back again and again to the same issue of raising public awareness. As you say, most people don't know it exists. Uh, that's why reframing it in terms of abuse, because people now understand what abuse is. They understand the word neglect. They understand the word maltreatment. That's why reframing it uh, may, may be the key to in increasing public awareness. And as you say, the frontline workers don't know about it. They need training. Uh, I uh, am advancing programs that in universities and colleges where future teachers and future doctors and future social workers and psychologists and lawyers are trained, there should be uh, uh, a, a, an element, a unit, a module about child psychological maltreatment. So that when they uh, do in fact qualify, or even when they're doing their 
the internships, they will be able to identify these things and say, look, this is something that needs to be addressed immediately. That, as I say, is, is a part of the campaign of raising public awareness. And are, are there any services that you offer uh, to individuals or if there are parents who wish to get in touch with you to learn more about your services? Is there a way? Uh, are you strictly focused in the state of Israel or is there an opportunity for an individual to, um, to connect with you? Of course, where one of the parents is unwilling to, to where one of the parents is unwilling to uh, get help, then the case ought to go immediately to court, and the court ought to deal with the case immediately. Okay, I'll, I'll rephrase my question. Um, so, are there services that you offer to individuals uh, where? intervention is required, either individuals, NGOs, governments, etc. And, and what are those services that you can offer to these people and entities? I, I don't offer services to individuals. I don't offer services to individuals. I did not return to the bar when I ceased to be a judge. Um, 30 odd years, 40 odd years of dealing with these things was quite enough for me to deal with individuals. What I am offering uh, is uh, my my knowledge, uh, my campaigns, the consultations for governments uh, as to how to reform uh, their systems. Um, uh, I, uh, for example, uh, I recently organised a uh, a course, a six part online course for a technical committee, which included senior officials from the government of Malta. Um, uh, and uh, I brought in lecturers from all the relevant fields, a professor of education, a clinical psychologist, uh, a senior social worker, two social workers, uh, myself as representing the, the law, uh, and so on. And I will be delighted to uh, offer these services uh, to any, uh, any organization, to any government, uh, any ministry, uh, who is interested in doing so. Uh, I also am uh, active in a number of uh, NGOs, including uh, an organization in Israel called In Between. One of the things we're doing in that organization is we are drawing up a document for parents who are considering separation as to how they ought to go about it, putting the emphasis on uh, their uh, obligation to see the needs of the children first and foremost and then to deal with their other issues. That's hard to do in the turmoil of a nasty breakup, but at least uh, we're trying to set up that norm. I'm involved uh, in the Parental Alienation Study Group. That's the organization which is headed by Professor Burnett, uh, who you mentioned. Um, we have a uh, prevention uh, working group going on at the moment. We're working, in fact, on schools uh, as, as our first project there. Um, uh, and I'm involved with uh, a variety of other organizations, uh, both in Israel and around the world. Um, and there, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I'm putting the emphasis on the, uh, the stages that I mentioned, primary prevention, raising public awareness, uh, immediate early identification and immediate intervention, and reform of the family law and the family courts 
because all of these are usually necessary. Um, and of course, each country has its own uh, um, its, its own priorities. I just want to talk about the financial and economic aspects. Uh, together with a professor of economics and an epidemiologist and a clinical psychologist, we are we've pr proposed research which we expect will show that every euro, dollar, cent, dirham uh, that's expended on prevention will save the state tens of thousands down the line. That is because uh, cases in court use colossal resources, both of the parties and of the state. And if little Johnny or little Janie, who are distressed at home, turn to alcohol or drugs, and then they may get involved in crime, you are having, the state is having to expend money on medical services, on psychological services, on police, uh, prosecutors, courts, defence counsel, probation officers, prisons, uh, a child who is affected by distress in the home, his educational achievements are going to be less. He's not going to be paying attention to his studies. So he's going to get a job which, is, which pays less. So he's going to be paying less taxes. Uh, the, there, there, are, there, there are very good reasons, and, and that's why we are looking, uh, and people who are listening to this cast uh, will, will, be, uh, will be delighted if they get in touch, who know somebody who's prepared to fund the, the research. We're talking about Israel, but we're talking about other countries as well, or people who want to partner this research. Because uh, if governments can be persuaded to expend money on prevention, they're going to save money down the line. And that ought to be the objective of every finance ministry to save money. Well, I think, I think many of our listeners will be looking for a silver lining uh, to their misery. And um, I, I, I think the research that you mentioned is obviously very important and it's, uh, and it's critical. Uh, you raised uh, several points that were also very interesting and were uh, new to me in terms of definitions of sexual abuse, domestic abuse, and things like this. Um, so this needs, this phenomenon needs to be recognized as a real thing. And as you say, that it psychologically affects children and, and that it is one parent that is inflicting this psychological abuse upon a child. Again, you know, unless there is extenuating circumstances to justify, but in the absence of those, it is, it, it is a dreadful for a child, I'm, I'm a child who grew up with two parents. So two loving parents, and I appreciate that experience. Uh, I, I mentioned it is, to me, it is natural law. It is what is God-given. It is what is expected in nature. And I think it is dreadful uh, for a child to grow up when they could have the opportunity to have two loving parents to be deprived of half of that love. And I think that is awful. Let me just come in here and add another couple of points. Uh, one is that uh, there is in some places an increasing awareness that um, 
a parent who uh, causes a child not to have contact with the other parent is in fact abusing the other parent. What that means is that this is kind of domestic abuse by proxy. Uh, and there is an increasing awareness that the child is being used. Uh, and therefore, uh, it, it, there are some moves afoot to include this kind of child psychological maltreatment as being a part of spousal maltreatment. Now, that again uh, should collect allies for those who are working against maltreatment to, uh, of children, uh, together with those who are dealing with uh, domestic abuse. So, so that, that's one point that needs to be taken into account. Another point that, uh, that, that I've come to the realization is that change happens sometimes from the top down and sometimes from the bottom up. There's a room for public campaigning, but there's also room for pressing for legislation uh, and, and, and for those uh, issues. Um, there are some places uh, where, quite justifiably, uh, there is by law an element of uh, training and education about physical abuse and about sexual abuse for all those professionals who deal with children. That should be the case and in including psychological abuse. Uh, and um, talking uh, about relocation uh, and uh, abduction, um, relocation and abduction uh, are, are part of the same thing. The, the difference is that while the Hague Convention on Abduction requires governments to act swiftly and efficiently in these cases, um, that doesn't apply to relocation uh, in the within the country itself. Uh, I, I am uh, I'm trying to help uh, someone from Russia whose uh, child was relocated three thousand kilometers. Um, but the Hague Convention doesn't apply, of course, because it's within Russia. Um, so, so that's another uh, point that needs to be taken into account. Because the relocation, even within the, the country where the child lives, uh, can be uh, a, an important tool in, uh, in uh, cutting off contact between the child and the other parent. So, so there is a there is a clear overlap. There's a clear overlap between uh, child uh, psychological maltreatment by parent in the sense of alienation and relocation and abduction uh, and uh, the the reaction or the, the way in which uh, states deal with these things should be similar. It should be swift and effective. One final point that I mentioned, and that is about. Uh, about um, the, the effective enforcement of decisions and judgments. Because in many of the places where I've spoken, uh, there is a um, uh, very serious and justified complaint that uh, even in a case where a judge has tried a case efficiently and competently and quickly, uh, if the order is made and is not complied with, then the whole effort has been wasted and all the resources have been wasted of the parents and of the court and everything else. 
What that means is that court systems need to recognize the need that their judgments should be properly enforced. In Israel and in many other countries, we have a contempt of court jurisdiction. The judge who gave the decision is empowered to supervise the enforcement and can impose penalties on a party who does not comply with the judgment. Uh, and that can involve imprisonment. It can involve a fine. It can involve paying court costs. Uh, in Israel, uh, it's been very well developed. Uh, a case, for example, where uh, there's a child a year old and uh, mommy, in this case, is trying to stop daddy seeing the child. Uh, and uh, there was mediation, which this severely personality disordered mother was able to manipulate for months. And there was uh, the social workers were involved uh, and all kinds of other people were involved. And uh, it came to the point at which I told her, look, little Johnny's going to be with daddy on Saturday. But if he's not, then you show up in my courtroom on Sunday morning at half past eight with a toothbrush because I'm sending you to prison for three days. And in those three days, little Johnny's going to be with daddy. And that was the end of the case because this parent realized that in terms of cost benefit, effective, the threat of effective enforcement was enough to stop the flouting of the order. Now, uh, I, I am aware of countries in which enforcement is handed over to a different authority. Uh, there have been cases in the European Court of Human Rights against Ukraine and Russia, Latvia, uh, Switzerland, Malta, uh, and a bunch of other countries dealing specifically with this issue of enforcement. Uh, and and uh, while, as I said, the European Court of Human Rights can impose a fine on the country and can inform costs, that doesn't usually help the individual child and the individual parent, but it sets the norm. And therefore, one of the things I am uh, uh, trying to uh, work towards is the issue of enforcement of court judgments, as well as the need to keep cases out of court and handle them before they need the court. Uh, but these is, it's part of a continuum. In fact, in Israel, we found uh, last week, uh, a judge, uh, the, the, the district court imposed um, 400,000 shekels, that's uh, 120,000 euros or $120,000 uh, compensation by a mother who had alienated the children against the father. Um, uh, and uh, that should be a disincentive. It's part of the publicity campaign because once that case gets into the papers, uh, any a uh, parent who's thinking of uh, doing alienation may think twice. Uh, and the other, and the other uh, obviously, it's not going to be effective against somebody who has no money, but the prospect of going to prison, the prospect of having the driving license revoked or not being allowed to leave the country, uh, these are disincentives. So that the actions of the court in effective enforcement add to the campaign of prevention, of raising awareness, and so on. Now, you raise an interesting point, because a disincentive to committing 
something that is really, as you describe, a psychological crime. I mean, there is a disincentive for me to commit murder. There's a disincentive for me to uh, commit rape. There's a disincentive for me to commit aggravated assault. There's a disincentive for me to uh, drive drunk. There's all of these different laws in place that disincentivize me from committing a crime. Yet, oftentimes, the alienated parent feels empowered uh, because the alienated parent has taken on this righteous, has stepped onto a pedestal of righteousness that they are doing an act to protect a child, to prevent something. And oftentimes they are supported by law firms. There are law firms who are actively promoting, by proxy, parental alienation, by supporting these clients and by propagating these types of lawsuits, by continuing to support these individuals in the courts, they are effectively complicit in psychological abuse of a child, and they're earning fees to do so. But but then you see that there are two issues here. One is the job of a lawyer is assiduously to represent the interests of the client. Uh, I've written about this. The lawyer who's asked to deal with a case like this should take into account the needs of the child who's involved. And failure to do so, uh, while it's not in most countries uh, an offence against the ethical code, it should certainly be in the mind of a lawyer uh, that where, um, you know, miss, Mrs. Bloggs comes in and says, I want you to stop my uh, spouse seeing the child. The lawyer should say, get out of my office, unless there are very, very serious reasons uh, to, to do so. Again, it all goes back to training. It goes back to uh, speaking to law students and goes back to the uh, bar associations. It goes back to, to in-service training. Uh, it, it goes on to, to, to deal, to, to say that a lawyer who's asked to take on a family case who has no knowledge and competency should refer it to someone who does know about family law. Uh, but there are sharks in every ocean. Uh, and there are lawyers who uh, don't care and make a lot of money at it. There are also a lot of lawyers on the other side who are aware of parental alienation, who work very hard uh, in those cases, um, sometimes pro bono because they see how difficult it is. And one of the uh, ways in which the court can intervene is by appointing a competent trained lawyer for the child to be involved in the proceedings. In Israel, for example, uh, uh, arising from a, a pilot project that uh, I was involved in many years ago, a guard, the, the court, not only, not only can the court order the appointment of a guardian ad litem, or the child, him or herself, can apply, but this is all funded by the government through legal aid. And there's a cadre of many lawyers who had special training uh, in cases involving children, including where the child may be saying, uh, I don't want to see daddy, I don't want to see mommy. 
how to represent the interests of that child before the court, not only what the judge, what, what the child wants. Uh, this is a very specific area of law, uh, of, of uh, guardian ad litem, child representation. Um, it, it, it's complex. It needs training. But in Israel, we've been fortunate enough not only to persuade the government that this is necessary, but also to persuade that it should be done free of charge so that there is no financial problem. The government has decided that it's worthwhile for the government uh, to fund this kind of representation for children. So that project itself is one which I am interested in promoting in other countries um, because um, uh, even when the, the lawyers for the parents are sharks, uh, each representing a different position. And don't forget, there may be two sides to the story. It may well be that each of the parents is to blame for the situation which has arisen. Um, but where the lawyers are busy fomenting litigation, a competent, properly trained lawyer for the child may be able to crack the lawyer's heads together and say, look, this is not helping the child, or may be able to present a different position to the court. Um, uh, and uh, so, so that's another area in which uh, many, uh, I, I would hope that many countries will see uh, that there are different ways of handling these cases if they get to court. But I say again and again and again, prevention, early identification and intervention to keep these cases out of court is something which ought to be encouraged and ought to be funded. Um, uh, and so anyone who's interested is invited to be in contact with me. Uh, my uh, email address is Philip Marcus Jurist, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, my website is Philip Marcus.com. Uh, and uh, I would welcome contacts. Uh, as I say, I do not deal with individual cases uh, in any jurisdiction, not even in Israel. Uh, but uh, if it comes to campaigning and if it comes to uh, specific uh, recommendations, uh, training uh, and uh, consultation on uh, reforms, uh, I'll be happy to hear. Also, if anyone's prepared to put money into the research or, or to partner us with the research, um, also, same address, philipmarcusjurist at gmail.com. Judge Marcus, we very much appreciate your time. Uh, we at uh, findmyparent.org, we're committed to helping abducted, missing, and alienated children. Uh, we provide a support network to parents who have suffered uh, from uh, this affliction. Uh, we appreciate your insights and you shared um, tremendous knowledge of your research and uh, insight and we appreciate it very much. Uh, we are also pursuing a project uh, to help uh, in Ukraine with uh, contact tracing for uh, children in this difficult time. Again, we do not take sides on the war efforts and who is right and who is wrong. We are on the side of children and we wish to connect children with their parents. Your uh, feedback has been tremendous. Your research, we thank you very much. Uh, again, uh, from me personally, uh, coming from the Kingdom of Bahrain, 
I'm very pleased that I could have this conversation with you uh, in the state of Israel and delighted that uh, we can have this communication. And it's a wonderful development uh, between our peoples to facilitate uh, normalization and uh, cooperation in uh, business, law, and, and other efforts. And I would be delighted to remain in contact with you. And I thank you for your time. Uh, I would also be delighted to visit uh, Bahrain. Uh, I'll be delighted to have you visit us in Jerusalem. Um, there's a lot to see in Israel, uh, including the Bible. Um, living in the place where the Bible uh, started is an amazing uh, experience for anybody bringing up children and grandchildren here. Um, and uh, let me just stop my video. Um, this is a picture of our pomegranate tree in our garden, which is now in full blossom. Um, and that also goes on here. So uh, I'll be happy to uh, see you and to uh, continue this uh, cooperation. I, I, I hope so. That will happen in the future. And thank you again for your time. It's very gracious of you to uh, share time with our listeners and uh, delighted to meet you on this podcast. Thank you, Judge Marcus. Yeah, can be just like me. You're a